So, uh, my name is Jeremy Frischnecht, for those who don't know. Uh, this is my second time preaching here at King's Cross Church. Um, my wife, Nicole, and I have been part of King's Cross Church for almost two years now, which is crazy to think about. Um, and we uh, lead a community group in Bayho. Um, if you haven't heard of that, it's just outside of PB. Um, and we also help with the finances here at King's Cross Church. Um, so yeah, uh, one side note that Obed forgot to mention is that today we are, we provided you guys with some sermon notes. Um, and yeah, Obed was reminded of these. This is something we used to do a long time ago. Um, and we decided to bring them back, which is perfect for today because it's going to be meaty. Um, and you're probably going to want to take some notes. Um, so if you don't have a pen, probably a chair around you has a pen. And if you don't have sermon notes, probably a chair around you has an extra sermon note. Um, yeah. So this morning, I had the opportunity to kick off this summer series that Obed has been mentioning and talking about the past month or so. Um, and as he um, mentioned, it is going to be about some of the key points of the church. Um, and so that being said, uh, today uh, my preaching is going to be a little different than you might be used to. Um, Obed usually preaches um, expositionally, um, but today I'll be preaching topically, which means I won't be focusing on one verse or one clump of verses, but rather um, using a bunch of verses throughout the whole Bible to kind of go along with the topic and support the topic that I'll be preaching on today. Um, so that being said, this is not an in-depth study, but rather a crash course um, on which, which I hope, hope gives you a hunger and desire to study the Old Testament um, and how it relates to the gospel on your, by your guys' self, um, do your own study. Um, so that being said, um, this will be fast-paced, full of scriptures. Um, we're going to have some scriptures on the screen, so you guys don't have to flip through your Bible. Um, so I hope you guys have had your coffee this morning and are ready for this. Um, yeah, so today I'll be um, talking about the most important foundation of the church, um, and that is the gospel. So please join me in prayer real quick. Father God, um, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather here today um, to worship you, to seek you, um, to be renewed, to be filled with your scriptures, to be reminded of who you are, your gospel, um, and the importance of this church and the church in the world today, Lord. Um, we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd be here with us this morning um, speak through me, um, work in our hearts, and just ready our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Uh, praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, to take a crack, or sorry, I'm back for a second. So, to get us started this morning, um, I have a question for us. Um, and so that question is, how are we, as a congregation, supposed to keep and make this church a gospel-centered church? Well, to take a crack at answering this question, I want to start by diving deep into the gospel. 
So what is the gospel? The word gospel is thrown around in church's lingo every single day, um, whether that be from the pulpit up here, um, in songs, in worship, um, in Christian articles you might read, um, and even amongst conversations in and outside of the church. But what exactly is the gospel? Uh, well, the word gospel originally meant good news, um, but now has come to be defined as the good news of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I would argue that the gospel is more than just that. The birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus is rather a climax to a far bigger story. The gospel is the greatest love story of all time. The story starts in the beginning of the Bible and continues throughout, climaxing with the sacrifice of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this continues, the story continues through this day. The story is still not finished, uh, and we get to take part in seeing or bringing this story to completion. I love looking at the gospel through this lens of the whole Bible because it gives us a greater picture and understanding of God's love, uh, or God's desperate love for us and how he continues to seek after his people. And so we begin this story with God's love um, for his people. God's love for us is scattered throughout the entirety of the Bible. So we start in Isaiah 54.10. says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And lastly, Psalm 36.5-6 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgment is like the, deep, or the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. So all these verses point, to, point us to God's steadfast love for humanity. They show us that God's, God loves us and cares for us and provides for us, and that this can never change. Right? We see in Isaiah that, For the mountains made apart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. It's God's love that is the connecting string throughout the whole story of the gospel, and pulls along the plot of this story, even when it seems like the story cannot go on. The story continues with Adam and Eve in Genesis, um, the first chapter of the Bible. Adam and Eve lived in harmony with God in the Garden of Eden, uh, and God loves his creation, so he wants to live with his creation. So Genesis 2, 16 through 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the, the man... Sorry about that. Uh, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in this day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Genesis 3, 1 through 8 reads, Now the, gospel, or now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve break the one commandment that God had for them while living in the Garden of Eden. They had two options. Trust God's definition of good and evil Uh, or choose to define good and evil themselves. As we just read above, they choose to define good and evil themselves by taking from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, And as a result, sin and evil enter into this world and humanity. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The sin is our failure to rightly love and honor God and his creation. Sin is death. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says, to rebel against God is to embrace death because you are turning away from the giver of life itself. Right away we see the effects of Adam and Eve's decision to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, They become ashamed of their nakedness, um, and they become afraid of God. Um, The intimacy, or relationships were broken between humans and with God. The intimacy that was once there between humans and God is lost. The story of the gospel throughout the entirety of the Bible is really a story of God's Continued grace propelled by God's love, which is a gift we don't deserve. Scattered throughout this story and the Bible are many prophecies giving us a glimpse of how this story is going to end and how God's grace will ultimately trump good or evil and sin. So the first of many is right here um, in Genesis 3.15, right after sin enters the world. Um, and this reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy foreshadowing Jesus' defeat of Satan and evil once and for all. So continuing along through Genesis, we see the first actual use of sin uh, in the Bible. Um, This is Genesis 4, 1 through 8, which reads, Now Adam knew his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must overrule it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain is defining good and evil for himself, thus contributing to broken relationships. Um, Sin is acting in our own benefit at the expense or cost of another person. Um, So here Cain is acting in his own self-interest to gain favor with God at the cost of uh, Abel's life, his brother. So Tim Mackey says that the writers of the Bible use early sin to create a robust description of the human condition. And this is the human condition. First, the failure to be humans that fully love God and others. Second, the inability to judge whether we are succeeding or failing. And third, a deep selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23 writes, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. This is the human condition, uh, the condition of the world that we live in still to this day. Now, this is just the beginning of the story. Uh, We know about God's love for the world. We know about our condition and the condition of the world as a result of the fall. Um, The next part of the story is our separation from God because of this condition. So Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, words this perfectly. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ears dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have been made, or have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. It's not that God can't be in the presence of sin, it's that it's opposite God's nature. But remember, because of God's love for his people, um, he still wants to be with them. Um, However, because of the fall, uh, we are separated from God. But God decides to make a way to be with his people. Spoiler, it's only a temporary fix. Um, God chooses a people to be an example with. Um, This is Israel through Abraham, uh, who God made a covenant covenant with and later gave them statutes and laws to live by. Israel, as God's chosen people, are like today's church as God's chosen people, uh, who are called to be set apart and live obediently to God. The combination of this and the system of, a system of animal sacrifices allowed the presence of God to dwell with his people here on earth. So these animal sacrifices would cleanse and atone for the sins of Israel. And as a result, God was able to dwell with his people um, in the form of a cloud, in the tabernacle, and later in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Um, There was another point to these sacrifices, um, and that was to compel people to become people of love and grace and turn away 
from their continued evil. In addition to the atonement these sacrifices symbolized, the blood of these animals would be used to purify and make things holy. Purification was the process of getting rid of the effects that sin had, the uncleanliness. And so Hebrews 9, 19 through 22 paints a beautiful picture of this purification process. It reads, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with both blood and without the shedding, or sorry, purified with blood and without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sin. So continuing, Exodus 29, 36 through 7 reads, And every day you shall, ato- you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make anointment for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall become holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. And lastly, Exodus 40, 34 through 38 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all of their journeys. So in these verses, we see the sacrifices and rituals mandated by God uh, to atone and purify the tabernacle so that the Spirit of God could dwell with his people. My favorite part uh, of this last verse is the image of God uh, being with Israel in the presence of a cloud by day and fire by night which would indicate when Israel would travel. So continuing along 500 years later, I'll take a little bit of a jump, and this is when the great temple is anointed. And once again, the presence of the Lord moves from the tabernacle to the temple. Um, and in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, it says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And just as Israel made sacrifices for the temple, they would continue this, or for the tabernacle, they would continue this ritual for the temple. Second um, Chronicles 7, 4 through 6 says, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets, and all Israel stood. That's crazy. That's 142,000 animal sacrifices. That's just insane. And I, I can't really fathom what that would have been like. Um, probably would have smelled really bad. Um, but here uh, we see that the presence of God is in the temple and that this is really, this is the heart of Israel. We see that it's a party um, that the spirit of the God enters the temple. There's music, there's celebration, there's feasting. However, throughout the next couple hundred years, the presence of God in the temple becomes less and less the heart of Israel. Israel allows sin and evil to enter into their hearts. They start worshiping other gods and not living up to the statutes and commands that God had laid out for them. God even ends up breaking up Israel um, and exiling them into other nations. These sacrifices could not continue to cover the sins of evil and evil of the Israelites. Um, their hearts were not changing as a result of these sacrifices. So in Isaiah 1, 11 through 13, 15 through 17, we read that, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my court, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil." Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. This animal sacrificing system had broken. The sacrifices had become vain sacrifices in the eyes of God and no longer pleased him. And once again, this results in the scattering of God's people um, and ultimately God leaving the temple. Continuing in 18 through 20, we are treated to another one of those prophecies uh, which demonstrate God's grace and love to his people, even in the midst of their sin and evil. And it reads, come, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall, eat by, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here we see a promise that our sins will be made white as snow, or meaning that they will be cleansed and forgiven. Um, it was clear that humans um, would continue to fail in their own efforts to become righteous, and that God was going to have to step in um, in there to fix this. Um, but before this could happen, um, there's so much evil 
in Israel and in their hearts that the spirit of the Lord leaves the temple and therefore leaves his people. Ezekiel 10, 18 through 19 says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. This is the part of the story when it feels or appears that all is lost. Um, The Spirit of God no longer dwells in the temple, um, and it seems like God has abandoned his people um, and and his promises. Um, But over 500 years later, just as it seems that all is lost, um, God came through on his promise to humanity to provide a perfect sacrifice that would crush sin and evil once and for all, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. John 3.16, as we all probably know, says that for God, loves, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Colossians 1.15 through 16 says he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And lastly, 1 Peter 2.24-25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strayed like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So God comes down in human form through Jesus and dies as the perfect sacrifice for the world's sin and is resurrected. Thus defeating death and giving humanity uh, an opportunity to live in complete and pure relationship with himself. He is a sacrifice that the Israelites could never come close to, um, even though they had tried. Um, We still have this choice today to try to make our own sacrifices work or choose uh, choose Jesus to be the sacrifice for us. And then Jesus leaves the world. Um, He ascends into heaven. And though it seems like this might be a good place to end this story, um, humanity now has... Uh, a way to be with God again, um, and the, our sins are atoned for. Um, but this isn't the end of the story. God gives us His Holy Spirit, His presence that will dwell within His us and His new people, rather than in a temple or a tabernacle. Acts one six nine reads: So when they had fr- had come together, they asked Him, Lord. Will you, be at this t- will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus promises that it is better that 
he leaves and that he is going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the missing element who enables followers of Jesus to live in accordance to God's view of good and evil, unlike humans have been able to do for thousands of years. In John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I, will tell, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Acts 2, 2 through 24 describes the coming of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had said. It reads, And suddenly there came from heaven a, mighty, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the presence of God dwells with his people again, um, and we are now his temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought with a price to glorify God in your body. And yet the story still goes on. Not only do we have the Spirit of God now within us, but we also have the promise to be reunited with God fully. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. One day, man will be fully reunited with God. This is what we call heaven. Um, complete unity with God. Which was only made possible through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And so now this is the gospel. Thanks for bearing with me. Um, this is the gospel that God loves us. He wants to be with us. But we are sinful and broken people. So it's not possible. The Israelites tried to do this. But as we saw, they failed. Just like each of us fail um, in our own efforts to be good enough for God in our own works. But God made a way by humbling himself in the form of man, Jesus, to bridge the gap that sin created between us. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are no longer dead and cut off from God. But if we believe in what Jesus has done and what it actually means on uh, an eternal level, then Jesus' perfect sacrifice covers our sins, past and future. So maybe this is your first time hearing and understanding the gospel, and believe that, this is the only, that it is only through Jesus' perfect sacrifice, through his death and resurrection on the cross, that we are reunited with God. To those I say, Give up your life for Jesus today, just like he gave up his life for yours. And maybe this is your hundredth time hearing the gospel, and I pray that you experience the gospel on a deeper level every time that you hear it. The gospel is not a one-and-done thing. It is living and active. 
This good news provides life and should continue to provide life even when we've heard it over a hundred times. And now after hearing the story of the gospel and having this foundation, I want to revisit the question I had asked at the very beginning. So how are we as a congregation supposed to make and keep this church a gospel-centered church? Yes, the gospel is the foundation of the church, and everything the church does and should do is because of and through Christ. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. However, even more than that, I think that this question is answered when we start to dive into how the, the gospel affects our lives, and by starting to implement and practice these takeaways into our everyday lives. By this, we will be able to keep, make and keep the church a gospel-centered church. And so I have three points, which I think should be direct effects of hearing and applying the gospel to our lives, and which as a result should affect ourselves, the church, those around us, and the world. So the first of these points is that the gospel brings healing. The gospel itself, as we just saw or heard, is a story about how brokenness in humanity is renewed or healed. When you hear or read the gospel, you should be reminded of the healing power and nature that the gospel brings. It brings people from death to life. This is healing. Applying healing to our lives through the gospel can be a deep spiritual practice. The potential of healing in our lives can be both deeply individual and corporate. A few examples of healing in our lives through the gospel might be these. Maybe your walk with Jesus has become very legalistic. You feel like you have to do A, B, and C just to maintain your good standing with Jesus so you're up to a certain standard. When looking at this situation, we can remember the gospel and that it is through God's grace and love that we are saved, not by our works. Being reminded of this gospel truth provides healing in how we relate to Jesus on a very personal level. A second example is the real act of repentance that the gospel should lead us to. We are all still sinful people, therefore as stewards of the gospel and the church, we need to continually be, to continually be checking our hearts and bringing ourselves back to the gospel. The spiritual practice of searching and repenting, though it might hurt in the immediate, provides healing for our souls and in effect, those around us who have been hurt because of our sin. Lastly, in regards to healing brought by the gospel, we're reminded of the forgiveness that God displays towards us through Christ. And uh, this should prompt us to seek forgiveness outwardly to people that we may have wronged and inwardly um, to uh, to forgive those who have wronged us. Um, this provides healing in relationships, 
and is a tangible way to live out the gospel to those around us. The second point um, is that the gospel brings hope. So we have gospel brings healing, gospel brings hope. Personally, I feel a crushing weight of hopelessness in this world uh, weekly, if not daily. Um, There's always something going on in this world that is causing hopelessness. Um, And this can lead to severe anxiety in our lives. But when reflecting on the gospel, we're reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. And this purity that we will one day be reunited with God, the creator of the universe. And the third point is that the gospel is a call to action. When we reflect on the gospel, we're reminded of God's love and grace, which encourages us to live a life of love and grace and to serve selflessly as Christ did. This is a call to action on how we should be living our lives as individuals and as a church. Being reminded of the gospel should also compel us to share the gospel with those who haven't heard the good news or have turned their backs on Jesus. And so this is the purpose of the church, to spread the good news of the gospel and build each other up in the gospel, joining in on bringing the story of the gospel to completion. So pray with me. Father God, um, we thank you for your gospel. Um, We thank you that you love us so immensely, um, so steadfastly, um, that you, in your grace, continued to chase after us and make a way to be with us, even in the midst of our sin and evil, Lord. We thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus um, and through that, that we can be reunited with you, Jesus, with you, God, um, and that you provided us with your Holy Spirit to continue on to live in your ways, God, and how you've called us to live. And we thank you for the reminder and the promise that we will one day be reunited with you, God. We also praise you and thank you that we can apply this gospel and this message to our lives and how we should be living day to day, how it provides healing, how it provides hope, how it calls us into action.